I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Our podcast is recorded all over Australia and so we take this opportunity to ask people to reflect on the country they live on and the special places they value. Hello, Karen. Hi, how are you doing? I'm very well. I am very excited about this episode. I think it's um, got a lot of high yield information. And high yield. Of, oh my gosh, I haven't heard that for ages. High yield and I think not what people would expect us to talk about, but also uh, really practical, interesting information. Super practical and it's definitely going to be on the exam. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, before we get into it, I thought we could touch on some of the things that happened last week in the news. That was our original purpose of the podcast, was to keep people updated with what is going on, including what DEA people have been up to. Well, I thought it's a timely point um, to note that the Lancet Countdown report for this year came out last week. It's basically a report that they do about health and climate change. Um, And they usually, each time they really call for urgent action on climate change and the fact that we need to be doing more. But I thought what was really interesting on this one um, is that some of the new statistics that they included were about the rate of deaths um, in the last two decades due to heat and the fact that they have doubled um, in those that are in the age group of above 65. Um, but I think it's it's just an important thing to note now that I'm in the Sunshine Coast in Queensland and it's getting really, really hot up here. Um, and I think it's we're going to start seeing more and more presentations of people in the emergency department and also coming onto gen med wards, coming into cardiac monitoring wards because of heat. So I think it's a, a timely point. It is um, timely, isn't it? To have a think about what our roles are as healthcare Absolutely. providers. And I don't know if we mentioned it, had the Bushfire Commission report come out at the last um, episode, but that's out too. And there's some really interesting resources now available. There's actually a resource now where you can look at prescribing. For example, you can look at prescribing of Ventolin and look in mm. your local health area and see how it related to the bushfires. And so I was doing it looking at some different areas and it's been, it's really interesting looking at that peak of um, Ventolin prescribing, for example, like over January um, when the fires are really bad. That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing that happened last week as well is that New Zealand declared a climate change emergency. I did not know that. Why are we celebrating an emergency? Isn't that a bad thing? (laughs) No, I'm just, I'm celebrating the fact that they have acknowledged it. Um, I know there's a, it's interesting reading about it because there's a lot of sort of, not controversy around it, but I guess the fact that New Zealand hasn't really reduced their emissions much at all in the last two decades um and so there's a lot of people saying this is just a publicity stunt like you need to back it up with some actions but I I still think it's a valuable thing to do I think you need to back it up with actions but um I think it's a good place to start and I know that they're trying to work from within the government at the moment and make the reduce the number of cars they all have and 
try to increase the amount of them which are electric or hybrid. So it'll be interesting to see where they go from here, I guess, now that they've made this declaration. Yeah, whether they'll actually change anything or whether it's just, all right, tick that box. (laughs) (laughs) And I think Um, next episode we're going to talk too about how WA has released its climate and health report and talk about the sustainable healthcare unit. But we'll talk about that next time. Yeah. Yes, I'm looking forward to that as well. Yeah, this is our last episode for 2020. Oh, my gosh. It's very exciting. Yeah. I'm very excited. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get stuck into today's topic? Um, yeah, I had some really important news to tell you. Yep. I was driving home. Well, I wasn't driving. I was a passenger going mm. home. I carpool, by the way, with lots Amazing. of people. So, it makes me feel better. Love that. And... I was driving around Parliament House and I saw an echidna, like on, you know how Parliament House is on a circle, like in the middle yeah. of Canberra? Yeah. There was a big old fat echidna right like next the, to a kid. Oh, right like on the grass? Just like yeah. on the lawns? Kind of, just like, you know, Cruise. doing its thing. Did yeah. someone put it there for like a news piece? Or <laughs> I don't know. It was great. <laughs> it made my day. That's beautiful. What are we talking about today? Oh, we are going to be talking about menstrual cups today. I'm not sure which one of us um, suggested this podcast as a topic. I think it was you. I think it was you, but I very enthusiastically agreed. Excellent. Um, Yeah, it's a great topic. And I think it makes all the more sense at the moment because I was thinking about how hot it's been getting and I was thinking about Christmas time and it's always so hot at Christmas time. And then I started thinking about how much waste there is produced around Christmas time. And then it got me thinking about how much waste we produce from non-reusable menstrual products. And so I think it is an exceptionally fitting time um, to be talking about Menstrual cups, you could even think about giving one to your family members for Christmas if you like. <laughs> that'd be you know? great. Put it in the Kris Kringle. <laughs> Hang it up in the Christmas sack. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Um, so, it's a really different than our normal podcast because we are the two experts on here and I think that Bo might be coming in uh, later on in the show to ask us some more questions. Mm. But basically what we're going to do is um, talk to each other about menstrual cups and then what we've essentially done is figured out what the most common questions are that people ask about menstrual cups. So as mm. we go through, we'll be posing those questions to each other so that we can kind of help doctors learn about how they can talk about menstrual products with their patients. So by phrasing it as like questions and answers, um, it makes it easier for doctors to pick up the information they need to know about it. And these are really common questions that people ask about these products. I guess we should probably start with, um, could you tell us what are sustainable menstrual products? Uh, Yes, I guess really broadly, they are menstrual products that you can reuse. So they're not single use um, and they include menstrual cups and then also washable cloth pads or some... Period undies. Period undies, exactly, that have that sort of inbuilt washable pad into them as well. And today we're going to be focusing mostly on menstrual cups because um, doctors will be less familiar with those and also we want to evaluate the evidence for their safety. Indeed. Could Like Kaya, could you, pretending you've got a doctor who's never heard of a menstrual cup before, mm. could you explain to them what it actually is? Yes. Um, so essentially it is a small flexible device, I guess. It's basically a cup. 
or it can also be a disc. There's different products out there. And it's essentially inserted into the vagina and then the opening of it sort of sits around or over the top of the cervix and it can collect up to 40 mils of blood into it. Um, they're made of either silicon, rubber, latex, or some of them are elastomere, and they can last up to 10 years. So this one product can last up to 10 years. It's all you need for your periods. They're really flexible, and then you insert them by squishing them down, and then they pop open sort of inside the vagina to catch the blood. Um, And that is essentially a menstrual cup. Cool. And um, like I had a look at the common brand names, but they almost always end in cup, right? So if Mm. you're a doctor and your patient says like one of the common brand names and they say cup, like that's, you'll know what it is. And they're essentially all pretty much the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 So like you were mentioning about all the waste at Christmas, I know a lot of women have started changing over to menstrual cups because they're trying to live lives where they produce less plastic waste. Is that one mm. of the big reasons why people are switching to these cups? I think so. I was really surprised by how much plastic is actually in the disposable products um, available to women because I think a lot of people realize that there's a huge amount of waste that's produced, um, but there's actually a huge amount of plastic in these products as well. So in tampons, you can have plastic in the actual within the cotton part itself. There's plastic in the string of it. There's plastic wrapping. It comes in a plastic container sometimes. And pads themselves can be made up to of 90% plastic, which is wild because you often just think of it as this soft thing. But yeah, there's a huge amount of plastic in it. Um, and over a 10-year period... No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> um, you can generate over 300 kilograms of plastic waste, which is absolutely huge. And as we know, plastic is not biodegradable. It takes 500 to 800 years for each pad and tampon to decompose. So why, like, I've heard that people doing beach cleanups are finding a huge amount of tampons and pads on beaches. Is that Mm. why they're finding them on the beaches? Yes, just because of the sheer volume of it. And then another huge problem is a lot of um, women flush tampons and pads down toilets, which is absolutely a big no-no. One study in the UK suggests that half of all women say they flush all of the products down the toilet. And essentially what can happen is those kind of products is what causes 75% of drain blockages. And so it it blocks a drain and all of that untreated waste then can't go through the sewers and then seeps up and goes to other places like creeks, streams, rivers, and out to the ocean. And so that's why then you can find huge amounts really of these menstrual disposable products on beaches. Yeah, that's interesting. And then I've um, also, when I was reading about this, about how much plastic's associated with menstrual products, it was saying that if you don't flush it, often you have to put it into a plastic bag and then put yeah. it in the bin so it's even more plastic. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it all kind of comes around from the cultural shame perspective that like women have always been told that periods are dirty and it's wrong and you should hide it. And so we create all these other products to hide it. Like we have these other plastic bags that you can put in so no one can tell that you have it. And there's extra special plastic wrappers that are meant to be quiet so no one knows you're opening it. It's like the whole thing is ridiculous. That's right. And I guess the other issue with plastic obviously is made of fossil fuel, but Also, like making these products obviously would make carbon dioxide as well. Like it would be quite energy intensive. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I was also surprised about this when I read about it. But so worldwide, the manufacturing of these sort of disposable menstrual hygiene products 
generates a total carbon footprint of about 15 million tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions annually, um, or about 5.3 kilograms per person for carbon dioxide emissions. So really a huge amount. It's so interesting because I know with all the stuff that we've been talking about with sustainable healthcare, I've started thinking a lot more about like the the cost of producing pharmaceuticals and other mm. kind of things in the hospitals, but I hadn't actually thought about um, sanitary products before. So that's quite a lot of embodied carbon in it. Yeah, they're not tracked either because obviously they can't be recycled, but they also don't have to be tracked because they're medical waste. But what about like I know often tampons are promoted because they're made of cotton, but are there problems mm. with that as well? Yeah, um, so obviously cotton is one of the thirstiest crops out there. It requires a huge amount of water um, in the process of producing cotton. And then a lot of the tampons that are out there aren't organic. Um, So they're using a lot of pesticides and different things that aren't particularly great for the environment as well to produce the cotton. And then a lot of tampons contain other sort of chemicals like dioxin and chlorine and rayon. um, And all of these can lead to pollution of the ground of groundwater in areas because all these products end up going to landfill and they sit there and they can seep into the ground and wash away to different areas and cause other problems. Yeah. So we'll be talking about a paper later on, but in that paper, which we'll put in the show notes, there's a really interesting picture that shows um, the cost and also the waste differences for um, using sanitary pads, tampons or a menstrual cup over a period of 10 years. Mm. It's just a great visual, isn't it? It is a really good visual. The main thing would be is going back to menstrual cups. If you were to switch to a menstrual cup, you would be having less than 1% of your waste production compared to if you were using pads and about 5% of the waste production you would have been having if you were using tampons. So it's this one little cup can make a really big difference to the amount of waste you produce. And apparently, if you switch to a cup, you would save the environment one whole truckload of waste in 10 years' time. So it's really quite That's a amazing. lot. It mm. is. And it's the cost is quite different as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because you only have the upfront cost with a cup and then that's essentially it. You just wash it with usual stuff that you have around the house and then you're pretty much good for 10 years. Yeah, so in one... Um, in, in this study that we'll put the show notes in, for example, for sanitary pads or tampons, you could be spending anywhere from 700 to uh, even like more than $1,000 um, over that 10-year period. That's in US dollars. Mm. And then a menstrual cup, the upfront cost is about 3 to 5% of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge difference. <laughs> um, I guess we're, we're kind of harping on a lot about why menstrual cups are great for the environment, but I think a lot of doctors haven't heard about them before. And so something we wanted to talk about in this podcast is really, are they safe? What you need to know about them as a healthcare provider um, and sort of answer some of those questions. Um, So our special guest, who you remember from episode one, of course, uh, is coming back to ask some questions and Kaya and I are going to have a little competition to see who can do the best job of answering that questions. So, Dr. Bo Frigolt, welcome back to the show. Hello, friends. Thanks for having me back. It's very exciting. Um, Yes, I'm more than happy to be your quiz master. Great. But all things menstrual cups, seeing as you guys just told us a bunch of information about them. Let's see. Let's see what you really know. Um, Do we need some little noises? Like, (laughs) cool. Of course, answers like a buzzer or something. (laughs) So, basically... 
what I've put together is sort of a collection of, of things I, I guess for people who don't know, I work in obstetrics and gynecology. And so I've put together sort of a, a list of things I've heard women say over the years about menstrual cups. Um, and then you guys are going to tell me whether or not that is a myth or if it is true. Um, and then we'll, um, we'll do some clarifications after each round. But it's a competition. Whichever one of you gets the most correct okay. um, is the winner. Great. Amazing. All right. So you guys feel ready to do this? Yep. Okay. All right. So let's start with myth number one. I was actually just statement number one. Mm-hmm. I don't give away if it's a myth or not. So statement number one. So menstrual cups leak more than if you wear pads or tampons. Cuckoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I right, promise Aaron, I do won't think? do that the whole time. Yeah. What do you think? Myth or myth or fact? It's a myth. So actually, they leak similar or less than tampons. And if people are having issues with leakage of cups, it's usually actually related to the size. So they should try some different sizes. There's heaps of instructional videos online about how to figure out what size or what type of cup will work best for you. Um, and then also, it's um, really uncommon for women to leak from heavy periods with a menstrual cup because it actually collects quite a large volume of blood. And so if you're having issues with leakage and you try the fitting things, definitely pop in and see your GP, see whether you're having some excessive bleeding. Mm. That's correct. The sizing as well comes down a lot to whether you've given birth before. So if you're somebody that's had children previously, you'll probably need a larger menstrual cup. Whereas if you're a nullip, never had any kids, then the smaller ones are usually good. Excellent. So Karin gets the point, but it looks like you also had some uh, interesting insight as well, Kaya. <laughs> bonus point. No, there's no bonus points. <sighs> um, all right. So let's say, okay, so let's try the next statement. So menstrual cups are less hygienic than pads or tampons. I mean. Are you, are you buzzing in? It's a myth. Yes, I'll buzz in. Okay. I think it's fiction. I think it's a myth. I'm probably going to need Karen to back me up here from the Lancet report as well. Yes. <laughs> but they can be as hygienic as tampons and pads, and there's good evidence to show um, that they're as safe from that point of view, from a hygiene point of view. Um, I guess the importance of it really comes into making sure that you're removing it and cleaning it as well. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Karen, but I think it needs to be every eight hours or so that you remove the cup and then give it a wash. Yeah, that's right. So I might take this opportunity just to like describe to our doctor listeners what the process is to use a cup safely. And in this way, it's quite hygienic. So They say that um, all cups, when you first get them, you should sterilize them before use because they don't come sterile. And then before and after each time you use a cup, you should wash your hands with soap and water. Um, And the soap, it's really important that the soap is mild and oil-free. And that's because most cups in Australia are made of silicon. Silicon can absorb chemicals. So it's actually really important that you don't use a soap that has any perfume in it. Interestingly enough, one of the soaps that they recommend is just Castile soap, which you can actually buy really cheaply from those whole food kind of grosser places. And then I guess the other thing that's important because silicon can absorb those things is to store it away from other toiletries. So don't put it in your makeup or perfume bag, um, (laughs) store it in its little cotton baggie somewhere else. So you already touched on how you should use them. So you usually fold them up before you insert them. Um, And once you've inserted them into the vagina, they recommend that you rotate it and it pops open. 
And if people haven't seen the menstrual cup before, it's quite interesting. There's these little holes at the top and those help make essentially like a vacuum suction. So once it's incorrectly, they're suctioned in place. Um, And then they say that you should change it every four to eight hours. So the TGA in its standard actually says that menstrual cup should or the company should advise users not to leave it in for more than eight hours. Um, but from the kind of evidence that I've looked at, there's not really any clear evidence on specifically how many hours it can be left in for. Yeah. But definitely definitely wash it twice a day. Yeah. And I know sometimes they recommend as well, if you're, you kind of hit that eight-hour point and you don't have any soap around or anything like that, occasionally it's okay to just take it out, tip the blood down the toilet just give it a wipe out with some toilet paper and then you can put it back in. And then the next time that you change it at that point, give it a good clean. Yeah, that's great. And that that's a question that gets asked all the time. Like how how do you use a menstrual cup if you have to use public toilets where there's mm. no sink inside your cubicle? And that's mm. the really like good practical advice. The other thing I think that doctors need to know is that, like I said, you know, when it pops open, it makes that vacuum. Um, that makes a seal. So to remove the cup, you have to break the seal. And so you have to pinch the bottom of the cup or actually um, if that doesn't work for you, you can hook your finger over the top of the cup and that will break the seal and then you can pull it out. Mm. Okay, great. So, we, so we're so we tied now, one apiece. So Kaya's got one, Karen's got one. And uh, so my next statement is the menstrual cup has more of a risk for toxic shock syndrome or cervical shock syndrome um, than other sanitary devices like a tampon. Go, Karen. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do it. This one's a bit tricky. So there's no clear evidence that menstrual cup has a um, is associated with an increased risk of toxic shock syndrome, which is great news. So just to remind our listeners, toxic shock syndrome is actually extremely rare, even with tampon use. And looking at the um, systematic review and meta-analysis, they did report some adverse events of toxic shock syndrome. Um, I think it was about five. um, And that's looking at the whole of the US population reports to the FDA. And from that, they weren't able to produce an incidence um, for toxic shock syndrome associated with menstrual cup use. But based on their kind of assessment of signals um, related to medical product use, they couldn't find any clear indication at this point that menstrual cup use is associated with toxic shock syndrome. There was also some studies where they actually looked at um, flora associated with menstrual cup use and there's no real clear, there is no clear indication that using menstrual cup alters your bacterial flora. Hmm, that is cool to know. Correct, Karen, so now you're ahead two to one. All right, so let's start with our next statement. Um... So, statement number four, using a menstrual cup is incompatible with intercourse. Ooh, I'm going, I'll buzz in. I'm going to say it depends on the menstrual cup you're using. So, there's different kinds of cups out there, and some of them have a pointy stalk at the bottom as if it's a tulip, like it's a flower with a stalk, and then some of them are more like a flat disc and so i'm not positive about the answer of this Bo, but i'm assuming that if you're using the one with the pointy stalk it's probably going to be a bit uncomfortable for 
if you are having intercourse with a male to be penetrating based on that. But if you're using one of the discs that has a flat base, then you probably would be okay. However, I would imagine in the process, you might lose the seal that you have in there, in which case you might have some leakage. I think you've hit, you've hit the nail on the head, Kai. I think it's there's certainly no medical contraindication to using a menstrual cup and having you know penetrative vaginal intercourse. Mm. But obviously, there are certain considerations you need to make, and some of it might be the comfort of your sexual partner, mm. um, depending on the device that's being used. And uh, yes, you do also run the risk of having you know a seal being broken or having leakage. But that's really not any different than if you were menstruating and using a tampon or a pad or anything totally. like that. You'd be have the same um, considerations you need to think about as well. Mm-hmm. Good question. All right. Yeah. So now we're tied 2-2. I think we've just got a couple more left. Um, so statement statement five, uh, a menstrual cup is incompatible with having an intrauterine device like a Myrena. I will buzz in again. I'm feeling I'm All on right. a streak. All right, Kaya, what do you got? Go for it. Is this fact or, fact or fiction? Um, it is fiction. You can use a menstrual cup with an IUD or Marina, um, but it's something that you need to think about a little bit. So essentially there's a theoretical risk that if you're using a menstrual cup and you have the strings of the IUD there, that when you're pulling out a menstrual cup, if you're not breaking the seal and you're just pulling against this vacuum, that you can dislodge your Marina or IUD in the process. And so to get around that, essentially, you just need to make sure that when you're removing the cup that you're breaking the seal, whether you're like squeezing the base of it so it changes its shape or whether you're getting your finger up and sort of reaching over the rim to break the seal that way. The other thing you can do is when you're getting a marina or IUD put in is just have a chat to the doctor and let them know that you use a menstrual cup because sometimes they'll cut the strings a little bit differently, a bit shorter, so you don't have as much of a risk of accidentally hooking them or pulling dislodging your IUD in the process of removing the cup. I think you win that one. That was a good answer. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that is absolutely correct. All right. So now Kaya pulls ahead three to two. Karen, you need to step up your game. Oh, my God. All right. I hate losing. Okay. Next statement. Statement six. I can't use the menstrual cup if I'm doing Pilates. Oh, me. Okay. Oh, of course, there is definitely a meta-analysis on menstrual cup use and Pilates, and it demonstrates that there oh is no risk of using a menstrual cup and it falling out while you're doing Pilates. What was their sample size? Okay, I made that up. I made it up. Okay. I was like, oh, wow, that's more than what I have. That's, okay, that's totally made up. But um, as we were talking about before, because it forms a seal, there's really no risk of the menstrual cup falling out. Correct. Well done. <laughs> All right, we're tied 6-6. We need one tiebreaker statement. Mm. So this will decide Mm. which one of you knows more about menstrual cups. All right. (laughs) What a title. Crowning title. (laughs) Menstrual cup queen. (laughs) The the prestige. All right. So here is the final statement. It is not advisable to take a menstrual cup camping. Oh, Kaya, you have to answer this one. I think I agree. It would not be, well... I don't know. It depends what your camping situation is. I think it's okay to take your menstrual cup camping as long as you're doing the usual things you would do when you're at home. So you've got your soap there, 
you're removing it and cleaning it as appropriate, you're having some sense of self-hygiene as well, I think it would be appropriate to use your menstrual cup. However, if you're the kind of camper that just last minute decides to go, doesn't bring any soap with you, and just wants to wash your cup in the streams along the way the entire way, then I think it would probably be ill-advised. That's pretty good. Do you mind if I add something onto this too? Go ahead. (laughs) So the systematic review really looked at developing countries and it was really interesting. They found that um, it was actually easier for a lot of women to use the menstrual cup than cough or other alternatives because they actually had less water used to clean the cup than they would to clean cloth pads or Mm. clean clothes where they'd had leakage. And so a lot of the women um, or girls even who were using these cups found that as long as they had one water bottle with really clean water in it and had access to soap, they could um, maintain normal hygiene throughout their entire period using a menstrual cup. Mm, That's really cool. So it uses less water. Yeah. Excellent. You know, I was going to crown Kaya with a crown, but I think with that little piggyback, we'll have to call it a tie. Oh, okay. And you, and you, both, you both equally know so much about menstrual cups and it's a beautiful thing. Thank you, Bo. I haven't Ooh. showed you my demonstration yet of how a menstrual cup works. How would we do this when it's an audio-based platform? I was going to say. Okay. And also, what how I, exactly are you going to do I'm, I'm not going to show you, but I'm going to, ex- I'm going to explain because not everyone is going to have a menstrual cup at home that they can use to demonstrate with this. Hmm. But most yeah. people are going to have one of those Tupperware containers that has that like little tab bit at the top. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? That lets out the steam. Yeah. Okay. So what you do is next time you have cooked a meal and you're putting it in the container for lunch the next day, put it in the container, put it in the fridge, do your normal thing. The next day, what I want you to do before, like when you want to get your lunch out, try taking the entire lid off without flipping that tab. It's really hard. You need to flip the tab, release the seal, and then you can take the lid off. No, it's good. It's practical. And for people who have never seen uh, menstrual cup before, it's something that's relatable. So I think that's useful. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, you're so positive. (laughs) Thank you so much, Bo, for joining us as our quiz master. Absolutely. Happy to help. Fantastic. Do you get lots of questions about menstrual cups, Bo? Uh, Yeah, I think it's starting to become a more popular item, as you guys mentioned, especially with the younger generation who are probably a bit more um, socially and environmentally conscious. I think they're aware that their menstrual products do have quite a big environmental footprint, and a lot of them are opting for menstrual cups for that reason. And I think there's also a lot more of a debunking of the stigma around menstruation, as you were talking about, Kaya, with some of the younger generation. Mm. And so they're a little bit more keen to adopt it and kind of work through the kinks that come initially with starting it. Because I think it, I think it isn't the most intuitive device in the world sometimes. Yeah. And so they're willing to give it a try. And I think as more of their peers use it, then it becomes a more relatable item and they all kind of collectively start to buy into it more. So we're certainly seeing a lot more people use them than we have in the past. And it's good. I think it is really good that we're doing this episode, particularly directed to health professionals, because I think it is a gap uh, of knowledge that even, you know, fairly experienced physicians or people who work in obstetrics and gynecology need to be more aware of. Because I've certainly seen instances where people have been doing pelvic exams in our department and have been confused. Mm. Mm. When they have found uh, a menstrual cup yeah. uh, over a cervix, they're not really sure what's happening. So I think the more uh, aware we make all of us about it, then you know we give better advice to our patients and hopefully get more people to 
adopt more sustainable practices in terms of managing their sanitation regarding menstruation and things like that. So yeah, I, I think this is a really good idea. I think it's re- I think it's relevant to lots of different doctors too in the hospital or not in the hospital in the GP practice as well. Um, mm-hmm. about counseling gps emergency, emergency. physicians yeah so mm. so one of the myths you didn't ask can it get stuck uh i mean in theory it can because it, depending on how long a person's vagina is and how they've inserted it if you in theory could insert it high enough that you could no longer retrieve it with your own hands but that's a similar risk if you were using a tampon as well we've certainly seen situations in our department where women have come and have either forgotten or have been unable to retrieve their sanitary device that's in the vagina and have needed it to be retrieved so yeah i would imagine it's probably similar Mm. it's probably good for ed doctors just to have a little awareness of that because that is a possibility Mm. and there are some practical tips that you can advise people to start with is that Um, It's much easier to remove if the person's relaxed and that they could try putting, like standing up and putting a leg up or squatting down, Uh, particularly in the shower is a good advice if people can squat down. There are some people out there who advise that if you do feel like it's stuck or you can't reach it, try squatting down and then bearing down and that can lower it down where you can then reach it. Hmm. And all those kinds of things are really important. If you're a doctor who's seeing someone who comes into the ED who says that their menstrual cup is stuck, um, I think it's worth having a few tips that you could work through problem solving how it could get out to start with. Yeah. Excellent. So we just want to finish with a little bit of a disclaimer because it's the first time we've had an episode where we touch on a topic that's clinical advice. Um, the advice we provided is not meant to be individual advice and we recommend that people do their own research as well and collaborate with their colleagues and access resources that are online. But if you are wondering where our advice came from, it came from the Lancet Systematic Review Meta-Analysis and we checked the TGA standards and also looked at the product advice for the common products available in Australia. Awesome. And then if you're interested in the waste and more environmental side of things regarding reusable and non-reusable menstruation products, you can find all of that information in the show notes as per usual. 